You know, I was saying uh, at the beginning of the day how I, I, I liked coming here, I like uh, teaching here. Uh, and I was reminded, maybe, at the end of the morning a little bit about what, what it is, one of the things, maybe, at least, that I like about it here. And uh, I think it's, you know, you ask a lot of good questions. <laughs> there are some interesting questions at the end of the morning. And... Uh, Sometimes some sanghas are a little uh, more hesitant in coming forward, right? The Brits, for example, <laughs> a little more reserved. It's not that people don't have questions, but they're a little more reticent maybe to speak up, which maybe isn't such a New York problem. Right? So I was, I was thinking a little about New York and the, the kind of assertive... Uh, nature or quality that at least as a visitor one feels a certain assertiveness right in New York does that sound reasonable yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and one might look with a different various different eyes one might look with a more critical eye and say aggressive etc we'll stick with assertive <laughs> So there can be an assertiveness to the way people walk and the way people express themselves, uh, etc. And, you know, like I say, oh, one expression of that, a lot of liveliness in the questions, right? The willingness to come forth. So, you know, it's not, it's, uh, I'm not trying to make that into a, a right or wrong, a good or bad quality, right? It's, yeah, it's just a quality I notice. And... You know, whether that comes forth in our communication or not, a lot of our education, and I don't mean just formal school-type education, I mean our conditioning, right? Cultural conditioning, family conditioning, psychological conditioning, human conditioning, is towards asserting ourselves in various ways. I mean, just from the innermost sense of asserting oneself as somebody, right? It's an assertion we make. And it's made up of all kinds of nuances and influences. Assert yourself. What does that mean? Hi, I'm Martin. That's an asserting oneself in some ways. It doesn't need to be an epistemological, it doesn't need to be an existential assertion. It can just be a linguistic assertion. In other words, I can say, hi, I'm Martin, but I don't need to believe it. But our habit is to assert ourselves in various ways, to believe in the assertions we make, and to, so we get to the theme a little bit, to create friction around those assertions. So, you know, just reflecting a little bit in this way about the assertiveness that's here sort of led me in this direction, and we'll meander through some reflections and see where we go. No, there's a few key ways that we assert ourselves. And again, New York in some ways could be seen as being a certain exemplar of these assertions. One of the ways, if we speak it in a kind of strong way, if we describe it in an assertive way, I know what I'm trying to do a New York accent. I know what I want. I know what I want, I know what I think, and I know who I am. 
So maybe we don't know what we want always, maybe we don't know what we think always, and maybe we don't know who we are right, always. But the, we, we, what we can see in, you know, and I, I don't really mean just in New York, right, but what we can see in our general conditioning is that um, those things are upheld as being basically good, right? In our culture, it's good. You know what you want and then go for it. And to know what you think, have your own mind, and, you know, etc. And we find sometimes in the assertion of views that, um, you know, strong views, polarized views, etc., get expressed. And we can sometimes have the impression that other people, at least, really seem to know what they think. And maybe sometimes one says, oh, I know what I think. Or sometimes I don't know what I think, but I should know what I think. Right? Because other people seem to know what they think. So the encouragement, and certainly you know who I am. You know, sometimes spiritual stuff is described as a path of self-knowledge. You know who you are. So here we are, sort of encouraged consciously or unconsciously, right? I would say definitely in the background, we're at least unconsciously unco- encouraged to you know, know what we want. When I speak to young adults, it's often a big source of, of uh, concern, right? worry, anxiety, stress, that they don't know what they want. Right? And they're always being told to know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? Right? And encouraged to have a plan. You know, do you have that thing about five-year plans here? People always people ask me about five plans. Someone said to me not long ago here. Actually, it was here in New York. It was here in New York Insight. In fact, <laughs> it, was, it was a while ago. I said so. Where do you see your teaching in ten years? <laughs> what, a, what a question! Really, I've never. I've really. I've never. <laughs> thought like that but you know whether it's around careers and I'm not you know maybe there's good use sometimes to having some kind of strategic vision for something I want to implement and how I'm going to do it and how it's going to work and planning for contingencies etc but amidst the the encouragement to assert what I want and to assert what I think and what I believe to assert myself and who I am there's a certain friction there with you know, basic Buddhist encourage, encouragement to undo a lot of those things, right? To undo some of our wanting. No, to undo wanting. To undo the way we crystallize around beliefs. And to undo our thinking, actually, in some ways. And what I mean, when I say undo, I mean in the, not in the sense of stopping doing, but in the sense of undoing, untying, disentangling. So rather than just asserting what I want, we're interested in exploring wanting. So as to kind of understand wanting. So as to disentangle our experience from being so caught up in wanting. And we we see the friction that creates. Disentangle ourselves from, from the way we coalesce around beliefs as if they're true in some way and as if i as if i'm right in some way in some way that often then makes you wrong or them wrong 
and to undo, to disentangle, to open up our sense of who we are. So I thought I would hang these reflections around friction and freeness on these, these different assertions a little bit, the assertion on what I want, what I think, who I am. And there's a certain nuance that I maybe want to just take care with in that. And that's the nuance that when we hear teachings about desire, for example, what I want, and some of the texts point to freedom from desire. I would use a different language, but we write freedom from desire or freedom from beliefs or freedom from the sense of self, sometimes expressed as no self or not self. Sense can be, when we're talking about undoing or working with these things, that one is trying to go from desire to desirelessness, from wanting to no wanting, from belief to uh, no belief, from self to no self or not self. And that's not the way I want to to hold these nuances. And maybe that'll come out, hopefully that'll come out a little bit as as we go through. We know a lot about wanting, right? What I want. Especially an interesting contemplation. Sometimes I have people do that as a as a kind of dialogue exercise, right? As an inquiry. That form of repeating questions. Maybe some of you are familiar. Just as a dialogue, you ask somebody a contemplative question again and again and again, and you get to just go through the layers of whatever comes up as an answer. One of the questions one can ask very fruitfully, actually. Tell me what you really want. Even even to receive, what do I really want? It's very interesting to see what happens. What do I want? What do I want? And as we explore what we want, we may start to explore how we want. We might start to find the relationship to wanting, the investment in wanting. Or the, the suspicion of wanting. Some of us can let our wanting really run away with us. But others of us actually are, are uh, you know, desire seems to be something dangerous. Either because we've seen it get us into trouble before or we've seen other pe- get other people into trouble, etc. There's that line from the texts. There's actually a line directly from the Pali. I can't remember which chant it is now, but we do it on some retreats that I teach at the Mulan. We do some some Pali chanting. And one of the lines is translated as um, free from all sense desire. And I changed it to free in all sense desire. And who knows whether which is doctrinally correct. I don't really mind which is doctrinally correct. But my vision of the freeness of this practice and my experience of the freeness of the practice just points me to uh, an aliveness 
of being of a, uh, and a possibility and an actuality of a certain freeness in the midst of desire, which is very different than, than the, the looking for a freedom from desire. Freedom from desire kind of needs the desire to go away. And yet this is a realm of desire. Right? It's not a black and white. It's not that, oh, desire is switched on and problematic, and what we need to do is switch it off. I would say, you know, you'll find differences to that view, but I would say. It's more like, oh, desire is switched on. How does it function? To what extent does it function wholesomely, helpfully, usefully, dynamically, creatively? Right? Because that's all can be part of desire. And to what extent does it function problematically, compulsively, uh, addictively? Right? We... It it seems to me absolutely fundamentally built into this human realm. Body wants to be comfortable, for example. It doesn't matter how how um, how spacious and uh, peaceful and uh, equanimous one becomes, right? Equanimity that can have a very, 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 very refined uh, capacity to really make room for pleasurable and unpleasurable. Still, body wants to be comfortable. Body wants to survive. We want connection and intimacy and love and fulfillment. Those 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 things aren't to be switched off. We kind of there's a sort of it can I think there can be a dulling of our humanness if we're not careful. And of course we might come to a practice like this, any of us, all of us, because we've been confronted by some of the difficult, messy stuff of our humanness. And for a while, maybe at least, the idea of turning some of it off seems like it would be a real relief. And yet. We don't get to do that. So, the encouragement, therefore, in this realm of desire, I mean, this human realm, but New York, basically, right? New York is a realm of desire. It's like the way we can really take that as an opportunity to study what what I want, to study how I want, to study the the wanting that arises right now. Sometimes it's very easy to discern. Right? Just easy to distance. This is a, a, a skillful wanting or unskillful. This is a helpful or unhelpful, healthy or unhealthy, right? creative or damaging. Is it conducing towards something uh, rich or is it conducing towards an unhelpful pattern? Just, just that discernment. What kind of desire is this? Is this? And dis, that discerning that doesn't isn't always enough, right? Sometimes, oh, it's like oh. It's an unhealthy desire. Oh, it's a compulsive desire. Oh, it's um, uh, an, you know, an unglamorous habit-forming desire. Oh, it's a desire I might not mention if I was at New York Insight. <laughs> but nobody's looking right now. <laughs> but it's not that that discernment necessarily allows us just to you know, go with the wholesome and not the wholesome, and not the unwholesome, etc., but again, we, it's like if we're honest enough, we, we then get to see what happens when we, when we, you know, what happens when you follow a desire that isn't so helpful, 
No, it's interesting the way the, the way in the traditions talked about being uh, present before and during and after some intention or some volition. And that's it seems to me that's very much part of working with desire, right? Not in a not in a harmful way, but in a way it's like, oh, letting yourself it's like you let yourself taste the wanting and taste the then the pursuit of something that's wanted and then taste what happens when you get that. I feel like I've learned a lot from um from really finding out about wanting, from following wanting in that way. You know, there's that kind of typology, Buddhist typology of the three types, right? The three poisons in Buddhism, greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's a little bit of a clumsy typology, right? That the idea that one is either a greed type or a uh, aversive type you know, or a deluded type. You know, because most of us think, well, uh, actually, I have all three, right? We can, we can recognize all three, but, you know, most of us, it does seem we can... We can we can find one that's more predominant. If I'm, if I'm going to get caught up, most of us can see I'm more likely to get caught up in, in, a, in one or other of those movements. The movement towards the lovely, the juicy, the satisfying, or the movement you know, away from, or the, just the movement towards spacing out, basically. I'm a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a greed type, basically. It's clear I can recognize, oh, wanting. Oh, there's a lot of things out there to want. And so, you know, I, I, and I can really see in my early practice how I really tried to put that away, you know, how I tried to extinguish wanting unsuccessfully. <laughs> so then one has to find an, another way with that. And in the specific, you know, it seems something that comes online, I think, with really, it's like learning how to say yes, you know, learning how to enjoy learning how to delight, learning about the dynamic creative potential. It's something very generative about being able to align with and be free in the midst of desire. And the more, ironically, the more one can allow that to come alive, the easier it is to discern whether it's helpful or not to follow when one's not wanting to look at it, when one's trying to turn it off, when one's trying to push it away, one's pushing it out of consciousness. So then you can't see how skillful or appropriate it is. And when you can't see, you're much more likely to act that stuff out. Right? A lot of the really un- unskillful stuff that goes around desire, it's disowned desire. Pushed away desire. For other people, the more aversive type, you know, of course you can get into trouble with each of the types, of course. The more aversive type tendency, if I'm going to get caught up, it's more likely to be in contraction, in refusal, in judgment, in um, resistance. But the way that can come alive, when you study, and for some of us, you know, the, the default position faced with desire, I shouldn't, I mustn't, I won't. And then maybe the judgment of of others out there and their wanting, etc. I think Dharma practice tends to attract more of the aversive types right, than the greedy types because you know 
there's a, there can, there can be a lot of righteousness, right, in the Dharma scene around about, you know, some sort of, no, 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 no. The, vir, the virtue, vir, virtue of, of, no, non-reactivity, not going there, not doing, etc. When we work with that, we might find the fear or the, um, you know, whatever ways that's pushing something underground. And we might learn actually the power of a really effective no, the power to be able to just to hang in to uh, with something that's uncomfortable. Right? Certain the the potency of uh, yeah, certain kind of containment right? to be able to kind of, to freely say no, to freely put something aside, to freely let go. You know, the, the more so-called deluded type um, tendency to space out and lose track, uh, lose track of oneself most essentially, right? go unconscious in different ways. The, the greed type, it's like, I know what I want and I'm going to go for it. And then the more aversive type is either I don't want anything or I know what I want but I won't go there. And then the more deluded type is, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I want. Right? The tendency to check out. And check out. But it seems to me that working with that tendency, and you know, we've all got all three, right? Working with that tendency actually tends towards uh, a sense of equanimity, or more than that, ambiguity. The capacity to just to to kind of to uh, handle the ambiguous nature of things. So I just mentioned those three types, and maybe, you know, for some of you that's familiar. I mean, the types, certainly, but just in terms of reflecting yourself, what's your habit? What's your tendency? So what's the relationship? Do you, do you, what happens around the asserting yourself with wanting? What might, what might it look like? Right? Not in an abstract sense, but what might it look like in your own life, in your relationship life, in your working life, in your life? What might it look like to be free in the midst of sensory desire? How might one orientate, now, ironically, not away from desire, which is the more trying to turn it off, Right? But what, how might one orientate into desire, right? inhabiting desire? It's very interesting. I've been looking at some of the Pali language around the Satipatthana and you know, quite basic um, meditation stuff, but really trying to get the feel of some of the Pali language. And it's very much, a lot of the language is that, has that quality of entering into. When we, in English, we talk about mindful, being mindful of. You might say, be mindful of desire, be mindful of your body, etc. But there's no grammar in Pali that, that is anything like being mindful of. Right? And mindful of suggests actually a kind of, you know, there's somebody over here being mindful of something there. But all the, the, all the grammar to do with uh, sati, being present, entering into presence. Entering into presence and then using presence 
to track, to track experience. You know the nupasanas in the Satipatthana? If you're not familiar with the Pali, and you don't need to worry about this stuff, but for those of you who are and like it. And so all the, the nupasanas, right, the four foundations of mindfulness, um, kaya nupasana, vedana nupasana. Right? The nupasana I wrote to Bhikkhu Bodhi for the book I'm writing. I said, how would you really describe the etymology of nupasana? And the, the translation he sent back was literally, right, is seeing along with. Seeing along with. So that's, a, that's an unusual grammar. It's very interesting. Okay, so entering into presence and seeing along with bodily life. And the best single word I can come up for that is tracking. Right? That's what it means, to see along with, to track. Right? Entering into presence and tracking bodily experience. Entering into presence, being present and tracking desire. So when we speak about this, this, you know, rather than just the habit of asserting desire, on the one hand, and rather than flipping to the other extreme of trying to be free from desire, trying to switch off desire, trying to transcend desire, oh, tracking desire. And then suddenly, this practice looks very accessible in any moment. Right. If we, if our, if our practice one of tracking our experience, there's no, there's nowhere where we, no situation where we need find ourselves outside of our practice opportunity. There's nothing that's uh, undeserving of being tracked, explored, entered into, opened up. And then this assertion of um, about what I think, asserting our views. Again, it's not. It would be a bit preposterous to to the idea that we should switch off our views or have no views, or that freedom from views would be some kind of you know I don't know, I just don't know about anything. And yet, also, if we if we track that if we track the way views form, or more specifically, if we track the friction, right, the way we hold our views tightly, wow, how much dukkha is there around that? And, you know, of course, we can just point to the, you know, the wider political situation, just how divisive it is. People, people have views, right, and people's views are different for whatever reasons. It's not the difference of views that causes a problem. Actually, difference of views can make for a very dynamic situation. The best discussions you'll have with people are when you've got a difference of views. There's nothing duller than when everybody agrees with each other. Right? Yes, oh yes, yes, it is like that, isn't it? Oh yes, it is, you're so right. Oh, that's so nice, oh. You know? I used to, yeah. Some Buddhist magazines can be a bit like that, right? It's everyone's supporting the same kind of lovely views. Much more dynamic when there's a difference of views. And that's how, where we find something new. Or we find, oh, we disagree. How interesting. And how come we disagree? And what might I learn by listening to you? What might I learn which might, it might change my view. It might help me refine my view. It might show me that my view is actually, is actually quite wise and clear. 
Any of those are possible. But only when there's that willingness to not contract around the view. And the more we contract around the view, the less we can have any kind of dialogue. And it, it, the thing is, it doesn't matter how right your view is. Some views are better than others, right? Some views are deeper than others. They're wiser than others. They're more compassionate than others. Some views are more evolved than others. But it doesn't matter how evolved your view is, how wise your view is, how clear your view is. If you're tight around it, right? if you're asserting yourself around the view, this is what I think and therefore... If you need to be right, then your view, you know, then how your view gets shared and how it interacts with other views is just is as as problematic and as divisive and as you know toxic even as the so-called lesser view or less evolved view. It seems like that's something we, you know. We live in an age where it's easy to have a strong view, right? And with good reason. And I'm not suggesting one shouldn't have a strong view. No. There's been plenty of things. You know, one looks at all kinds of elements of the, of the wider social, political, uh, environmental situation. And just a lot of strong views might arise, and they might well be you know, clear views, etc. And then how do you hold them? What's the relationship to them? If you track your view production, view forming, view holding, your view expressing, what's the inner relationship to it? You can feel the friction that goes with it. And then that begs the question, what might it be like to hold the same view, but to hold it lightly? What might it be to hold the view in such a way that, you know, that the view can stand up actually to some disagreement. Or that I can stand up to the view being disagreed with. I remember a long and of course it's not just on that wider social situation, just the way the way our cleaving to our views impacts our, our close relationships, our family relationships. I remember a long time ago speaking with my teacher about uh, family Christmas and expressing some trepidation about spending Christmas with my family because, you know, family, they don't understand. And I'm sure I said it in some more dharmically correct way than this, but basically what I meant was, I'm so evolved and so wise and clear and I've got such good views and my family is so unwise and unevolved, and have got such unclear views that there's, you know, there's always tension. And then my teacher was like, oh, "Really? <laughs> Interesting." <laughs> and encouraging me to see that, you know, through the asserting of my view, through the clinging to my view, for the, the, what the friction around the view, I was somehow expecting that. My poor family, who I, you know, decided were, you know, unevolved and you know all the rest of it, should somehow be able to come up and meet me where I am, and that then we would have a nice exchange of views, and then there could be harmony. 
And it seems to me that's I mean, it's definitely, you know, was very alive in my own life. But it seems to me it's a hazard of this kind of practice, right? That we start to re- genuinely understand ourselves and understand the way mind works and understand the nature of reality, you know, in a way that may be wiser and clearer than some of our social circle or family or co-workers or whatever. But then, as my teacher pointed out to me, well, if one considers oneself to be more evolved, wiser, clearer, etc., then surely the, the onus is on oneself if I'm the one who I think has more range, right, more subtlety, more clarity, more capacity, then the onus is on me to adjust myself. Right? How can I meet the other where they're at? Oh, we've got a difference of view. Big deal. How can I meet the other where they're at? It's a very different entry point into some opposing view than how can I demand that the other meet me where I'm at? What we all want, we want to meet. But we, it's, we, we struggle to meet across a difference of views. Or actually, more correctly, we struggle to meet across the rigidity with which we hold our difference of views. And of course, you know, sometimes the situation can be charged, situation can be painful, situation can be fraught. Right? I, know I don't want to kind of make this into just some easy thing. And yet, oh, how might I meet the other where they're at? That may or may not right, allow for some exchange of views in the moment, but at least it allows for me to see that I, my view doesn't need to be challenged, but, I don't, but my, the way I'm holding it maybe really does. And... Like we say, we talk about friction in terms of this very visceral sense of clinging to experience. You know, if you're honest, you you can feel when there's friction around a view, when you're contracted around a view. That, the, the physical tension, the sense of righteousness or indignation, the rising blood, the beating heartbeat, the the sort of the sort of harsh dismissiveness of the other, etc. So, if you're, if all, of, if any or all of that is going on, maybe that needs more attention than who's right and wrong in the situation. Care for this, care for this, manage this, understand this, right? soften around the view. Much more grounds to be able to be heard. So, you know, friction that we can generate with what we with what we want and what we think or, what, or believe, and then a little bit of just about the friction around who I am. You know, there's 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 a lot of different layers to that, and I maybe just offer a few reflections. So I'd like to hear from you and for us to explore together. There's all the there's all the just the general uh, storylines, right? The 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 playing out, the inner rhetoric, 
the little dramas, the, the, the reinforcement of my usual sense of self and the signifiers of our identity, whatever they are. And the way we, we reinforce all those different things. And that gives us our particular sense of self. I'm this kind of person. And of course, our practice is one of very directly engaging with all of that in a reinforcement and rhetoric. And literally learning to, to soften the friction that we make out of it. And just the willingness, and waking up to being caught in a thought loop, and the willingness oh, to just leave it alone. To leave it alone. To leave it alone. And I use that language of leaving it alone quite advisedly, right, quite specifically, because often what we notice is a tendency to push it away, which is very different, and just more friction. Shouldn't be thinking. Why sometimes in a guided meditation, I say, oh, where's your attention right now? And point to the capacity that when we notice we've been caught up, actually it's a fabulous thing. Because the, the noticing is the good news, you know, that one's not caught up anymore. But how easily this friction right there, I shouldn't have been caught up, etc., etc. And so every time, as we cultivate this capacity to just leave thinking alone, to let thinking be like, you know, like sounds, basically. Sometimes sweet sounds, birdsong, you know, thoughts are like that. Oh, da 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 da. And then sometimes thoughts are more like the generator. And then, you know, to leave them alone and not create friction around them. It's just thinking. It's just the stuff that minds do, right? Like that, that noise, that's the stuff that generators do. Right? And thinking is the stuff that minds do. Whether there's a thought or not, or what kind of thinking is happening or not, really isn't the most important thing. It has an effect, of course it does. Birdsong has a different effect than generator noise. But it's not the most important thing. Is that, would we let our well-being be completely dictated today by whether there's birdsong or not? If you would, you'd better not come to London, to New York Insight. You'd better go to some upstate leafy meditation centre where you've got better chance of birdsong. And it's interesting, I think, particularly just that comparison with thought as sound, because they really share the same nature, right? They just appear in awareness and disappear, and some of them are sweet and some of them are not. But because of the asserting that we, you know, most thoughts begin with the word I. Oh, I wonder what, oh, I wish that, oh, I remember when, oh, I'd really like to. And it sort of doesn't matter what comes after that. A lot of what the thought is doing, it's just feeding that assertion, the assertion of the sense of self. So there's that whole, there's that what we could call the storied self, right, that we're feeding and reinforcing, and the way we learn to uh, defrictionize, to, to disidentify with to be more spacious around, to make less of a big deal about the, the stories that fit the sense of who I am. 
But then there's also the more existential sense, right, which we were speaking about a little bit this morning when we spoke about peace and calm. Right? And regardless of the story, just the basic sense that I am any kind of something right, called a self. And it's, you know, when that starts to appear in doubt for us, well, sometimes it's immediately experienced as being very liberating. But often it's also then or soon after or, you know, rather than being liberating, it's experienced with, with fear or confusion or a kind of recoiling to try to re, re, reassert right? just the basic, what in Buddhist language is called the basic conceit. I am something or someone. And just like with the other things, it's not like we're going trying to go from the sense of self to no sense of self. It's not, I would say, like we're going, the usual habit is to try to be somebody. It's not that that resolves, even though it can, but in moments of experience, that can resolve into a sense of being nobody. But being nobody isn't sustainable. Being nobody can appear exquisitely in moments of deep peace, or calm, or spaciousness, where the, where the whole sense of that basic conceit of being an entity in a place in time can completely uh, thin out and dissolve. But that's a meditation experience. Right? That's a refined moment of dissolution. Actually, the freeness in regard to that assertion of self isn't from going from, uh, we might say, from, from somebody to nobody. It's more like going from somebody to anybody. Right? Finding out, oh, we can be anybody. There's a lot of bodies here. Right? We can show up in all kinds of ways. To me, that's, that's a very beautiful um, quality of freeness free to show up in a lot of different ways. And if you think of the people who most inspired you or most seem to exemplify a freeness of being that this practice points to, they don't seem to be, they're not self-effaced. They're not gone, they're not lacking in personality. Right? They're not nobody. Right? They're actually more like, wow, multifaceted somebody's multifaceted capacity to come forth in, in an appropriate way, to come forth in a, an alive way, to come forth in an immediate way, to come forth in a responsive way, to come forth in a free way. And that's very, very liberating. We don't, you know, it's, again, we, the temptation can be to want to switch something off, to switch off this busy mind, to switch off this narrow sense of self. But then, you know, we actually they're condemned to be nobody. What about the, the endless possibilities for how we might show up? Because life's constantly, constantly, constantly inviting us actually to show up. To show up to this person, to show up in this situation. To show up for this moment. To show up for life's beauty. To show up for life's challenge. To show up to this person who I don't agree with. To show up to this person who needs a moment's care or listening to. Right? To show up and enjoy. To show up and endure. To show up and take 
delight to show up and be in solidarity with someone suffering. Many bodies, many bodies, many bodies. And because what's called not-self, which you know, importantly and powerfully points to the capacity to be, to be free around the assertion of the sense of self. Because the language of that is so strong, I think it's important just to have you know, the nuance of not, you know, not assuming a shift from there is a self to there isn't a self. But actually, there's, there's a lot of scope on that spectrum for the ways we can show up freely in a way that doesn't need to be asserted, the way we can say, you know, hi, I'm Martin, without believing it. Or, hi, I'm Martin, but I've no idea who that really is. But let's see who it's going to be in this moment. Kind of, uh, so the, the, the realm of being somebody, anybody, this body, right now, becomes a freer realm, a wide open realm, an expressive realm, an expansive realm, a playful realm. That's what we actually want from each other. We want each other to show up in a way that's full of possibility. Often the conflicts, we, I mean just the personal conflicts we get into, when we get disappointed by someone or hurt by someone or frustrated by someone, it's because, oh, because they're busy trying to be, you know, that body, or they're busy seeing us in a certain way, or I'm busy, you know, with some fixed view of them. How, f- how much freer might it be if we could, if we're able to show up with that sense of possibility with each other? So I wanted to, as I say, just to use this sort of the, the theme of the day to, to, to just look at these nuances of because uh, there's such common themes, right? Wanting, the world of wanting, the world of believing, and the world of just you know, conceiving of oneself uh, underpins so much of how we experience life. So the intention is that these reflections you know, just support the exploration of all of that. And you know, we have some time, so please feel free to continue the exploration in the form of questions that might be there, but also in the form of you know, whatever kind of explorations or reflections or dialogue that we might have together. <laughs>